Hi, everyone. Jeremy here, Walter's co-host on What Really Matters. Our sincere thanks to all of you who have left us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, which really does help us find a bigger audience and grow the show. So if you haven't already, please consider rating us and leaving a review. Thanks again. And now to this week's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's begin with this week's news. First story of the week. Ten years ago, Americans felt quite positive about higher education. Opinion polls back then showed that about 86% of college grads said college had been a good investment, 74% of young adults said a college education was, quote, very important, and 60% of Americans in general said that colleges and universities were having a positive impact on society. But Americans' feelings about higher ed have turned sharply negative, according to the New York Times. Today, the percentage of young adults who say college is very important has fallen from 74% just 10 years ago to 41% today. And only a third of Americans say they have a lot of confidence in higher ed. Among Gen Z, 45% say a high school diploma is all you need to, quote, ensure financial security. And almost half of American parents now say they'd refer, they'd prefer their children not enroll in a four-year college at all. News or faux news? Well, if you're a college administrator or professor, it's big news and scary news and bad news. But I think um, for the rest of the country, it's probably okay. Um, you know, we've t- people talk a lot about how the rise in tr- uh, tuition, you know, which has gone up much faster than inflation, has affected things. Uh, they've also talked about how wokeness on campus makes um, some degrees less useful than before. Um, but I think there, you know, beyond that, something very profound is is happening, and it's probably a good thing, though not necessarily a great thing for people like me. And that's that the golden age of the wonk is drawing to a close. In the 20th, early 21st century, we sort of reached this amazing position in human affairs where if you wanted to practice any serious profession, uh, do anything really complex, you had to memorize a lot of stuff. If you were a lawyer, you had to work really hard to get through law school. And heaven help us if your ambition was to be a doctor, the amount of stuff you had to cram into your head to go through medical school. But this is true of architects. It's true of sort of the learned professions in general. And frankly, the number, the percentage of the population that A, has the what the Germans call the Zitzfleisch, that is the you know sit flesh, the ability to kind of just sit in a chair and study is not so high, and it's also true that not everybody's mind is equally adapted to these kinds of processes of memorization, repetition, and test. Blah blah blah. So if you were someone who sort of genetically got the golden ticket there, um, and you could sit down and st- learn all that stuff. You could sort of write your own ticket financially, even if you were the even if you were like a totally horrible human being. You know, uh, 
They're, they're whole professions like surgeons where the sort of word used to be, I say used to be in case I'm ever going to be facing a surgeon out there in the bad old days. Um, the whole profession was considered sort of very unfeeling. Um, again, a hundred years ago when doctors had no medical knowledge to speak of, a uh, bedside manner was <laughs> incredibly important. Now it's like, you know, did you graduate in the top 1% of your class in medical school? And if you did, I want you, even if you're kind of a jerk. So the golden age of the wonk People like that have really had a great time, and they always in high school, amazingly, they weren't always that popular, uh, but they could console them, says, ha, the jock and the cheerleader, the football captain, 20 years from now, they'll be pumping gas, and I'll be rich, ha, ha, ha. Uh, and that's sort of kind of in the psychology of a lot of the American elite is now it's my turn now. Uh, you made me miserable in high school, fill her up. So, uh, but what happens, you know, if that's coming to an end, uh, if in fact, whether it's chat GPT or Dr. Google or all the, you know, you now really don't need to know as cram as much knowledge into your head as you used to, uh, think about in London, the cab drivers in the old days, they had this thing, I guess they still have it, you know, called the knowledge, or London streets, which are incredibly complicated and bizarre. You would study for three years before you passed these incredibly difficult exams before you could be licensed to drive a black cab. Now you could just put an address in GPS and it takes you there. So the Uber driver who hasn't had five minutes of studying the knowledge can get somebody to the destination most of the time just as well. All right. I think that's the core problem facing colleges, that cramming is going to be a fundamentally less necessary part of social life and productivity. What that's going to, I think the, the, the you know, that's going to make all kinds of changes in society and in the economy. It's hard even to wrap your head around what they might be, but this is a real trend. I think it's probably here to stay. I remember a study that came out over the summer that showed that ChatGPT or some related AI medical assistant did perform better uh, in bedside manner specifically among patients than actual doctors do. <laughs> I do think that the health system of the, the future is more likely to be a flight attendant with a smart box so to speak, where the knowledge is not necessarily in the head of the human being. Some knowledge, yes, but basically the, the, the bulk of the knowledge is in the machine, and what the person provides is the interface and comfort and support. You know, again, as a teacher, you know, you can have a computer can know everything, but a student is not, a kid is not necessarily going to be able to access that or, or use it. The role of human beings is not going to go away, I think, but, um, uh, or we're really all in trouble. But I do suspect that fewer and fewer people are going to feel the need to shell out megabucks to get a college degree. All right. Our second story. 
For decades, the phrase made in Germany signaled cutting edge automotive technology and design. But now German automakers are falling behind in the global race to produce more electric vehicles. And some executives are using a new catchphrase, China speed, to describe how quickly they need to catch up. The term reflects the rapid transformation of the Chinese car industry into a battery powered juggernaut which was on display recently at a massive auto show in Munich with Chinese newcomers like BYD, which recently overtook Volkswagen as China's best-selling brand this year, stealing the show. One Berlin-based analyst of the electric car market told the New York Times, quote, I think the Europeans are just pretty much petrified of how the Chinese will perform in Europe, close quote. News or phone news? News. You know, the German car industry, and in fact, virtually all of German industry is in really big trouble. Uh, possibly the biggest sort of crisis Germany has faced since, you know, really the 1950s. The, you know, the, the internal combustion engine driven car is a really complicated thing. By contrast, the, the EVs are somewhat simpler. That is, the internal combustion engine has been refined over generations. There are all these little hacks that, that Germans and others, but the Germans are really good at it, have figured out sort of precision workings and all of this stuff that makes a BMW a really special thing. I say this, by the way, somebody drives a South Korean car, the, the Genesis, and I'm perfectly happy with it. But um, those German cars really do purr along, and they sort of justify a kind of a premium price. And the German social model, in a way that other Western countries haven't quite done or done as successfully, has been to try to keep the German industrial base going, keep as many industrial, stable, blue-collar jobs in Germany as possible. They've developed, you know, their... They're widely admired vocational schools where they really do a lot more to train and apprentice young people to work in these things, to do this kind of quality engineering. And it's not just related to being able to produce really fabulous cars or parts or, or other specialized things. It's, um, it's because Germans are even more afraid of populism than New York Times readers are. Um, and one can look at German history and see reasons why why that might be a, a, a scary thought. We see the AFD in Germany is at 22% in the polls, and that's really before the deindustrialization has hit. Electric vehicles are very different things. They don't require uh, the same kind of, um, uh, you know, zillions of little tweaks to be good. They, they, they lend themselves in some ways to mass production more easily. It takes many fewer hours of human labor to build an EV and than it does to, to, to build a Mercedes or what have you. So in any case, as industri internal combustion cars are replaced by EVs, if they are, it's not entirely clear to me that, that, you know, it's clear that governments want EVs, environmentalists want EVs. At this point, industry does because it's been forced to make such huge investments in EVs that if EVs don't really take off, industry is, 
is in a bad place. It's not entirely clear that consumers really want them, but you know we'll see. However, as that happens, you are inevitably going to see many jobs lost in industry, exactly the kinds of blue-collar jobs that Joe Biden has built his sort of brand on trying to save. And for that matter, Donald Trump has built his brand on trying to save. So the shift toward EV is a shift away from good blue-collar jobs. And Germany's not only facing now that, but it's facing the fact that Chinese very cleverly figured out early that if they can push, oh my gosh, our piety, our deep concern for the environment, just look, John Kerry, how sincere we are and how much we really care about the things that matter to you, right? And also just coincidentally, if we can actually push these EVs by, for example, requiring the Chinese to buy, you know, push the Chinese faster so that our market develops faster and we have advantages, plus we have all this other integrated tech that investments that we're making in our planned economy based on this shift, right? We're going to come out there and be able to wipe Germany off and Japan, ha ha ha, and South Korea, just wipe them off the table with our car industry and it will be green. So, you know, this is, the Germans are sort of waking up to this situation now. I don't know what they're going to do about it, but it is a real threat to the basis of the German social model, German identity. And it, uh, you know, we're just seeing, I think right now, we're still in the early stages of it. Angela Merkel had that great line, which she gave, I think, in 2013 or so, when she referred to the internet completely seriously as uncharted territory, which became like a meme at the time, but I think actually accurately captured how comprehensively Germany had missed the transition from industrial to, to a digital economy. That's right. And they're, they're still there. Uh, they haven't really, um, you know, the, you know, it's just sort of a fact of life that in one dimension after the other, the Europeans are sort of retiring from, from the front lines that, you know, Germany and much of Europe used to absolutely be on the front line of scientific research, technological change. Um, the fact that, you know, when people talk about tech leaders of the future, they, it's, it's, you know, who'll win, China or America? Will India come up from the outside? Europe is just not in these discussions. All right, our final story of the week. Littoral combat ships, which have been in production since 2003 and cost around $500 million each, were supposed to launch the U.S. Navy into the future. Instead, they've broken down across the globe, and many of their weapons have never once worked. Now the Navy is getting rid of them, including one that's less than five years old, according to ProPublica. Having been plagued by breakdowns and cost overruns since their inception, the ships are being mothballed because they do not, quote, provide the lethality or survivability needed in a high-end fight with peer competitors like China. Walter, news or faux news? Um, bit of both. You know, I, I, I'm a little hesitant just because I don't think ProPublica is a very good news organization. Uh, I think that a lot of, it, a lot of the times it is agenda-driven. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that they, they have a view 
and generally on something like this, it's going to be to make the military look bad, to make military spending wasteful. I don't expect to see a lot of ProPublica um, news stories saying U.S. military does something really cool, unless maybe it, it involves like uh, integrating, you know, trans uh people into military combat structures. You know, I just don't. Um, so unfortunately, and this is, I think, the case for all of us in the, you know, as we try to assess the media, you've got to consider the source and figure out, you know, how trustworthy is that source. So let's let's put that caution thing, but let's stipulate that this is based, you know, suppose they have in fact gotten it right. And it's possible. I can't tell you. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's bad news. It's, um, a lot of money's been wasted. A lot of time has been lost. Uh, I am going to say that it's easy to underestimate the difficulties of managing military, the military in a time of rapidly changing technological conditions geopolitical conditions, and also with a really terrible uh, American system of budget and procurement, budgeting and procurement. So that, you know, here you are, the way it works now is if you're going to have, if you want a weapon to, system to be available to you 10 years from now, you really have to start planning it now. But the one thing that we all know for certain is that the technological environment 10 years from now is going to be radically different from the, the current environment. And so a lot of whether, you know, how well that system is going to work in conditions that you don't understand is utterly dependent on things that you don't know and don't control. There's the general evolution of tech, but also what are your competitors doing? You know, on the other side, they say, oh, they're going to build these literal ships. Hmm, what could we work on that would be an effective countermeasure to these literal ships? And it might be, you know, the literal ships at the time they're, they're being designed may be based on tech that hasn't yet been fully developed, but... They expect to be by the time. Well, let's think about countermeasures that also rely on tech that doesn't exist right now. But maybe if we put in some investments, it could be ready in time. So, And of course, they're not going to tell us what they're doing. We'll be guessing what they're doing and, and, and trying through the fog of deceit and security, trying to guess what they're doing. So... I'm not saying, you know, if it really turns out that we've, we've spent zillions on really expensive, elaborate systems that don't work, I'm not saying there's nothing to be learned by that or that we shouldn't um, really take a hard look at how those decisions were made and whether we couldn't make better ones in the future. But I would sort of strongly want to suggest to people that we understand that the uh, the combination of the rise of peer competitors and the dramatic acceleration in the rate of technological progress is creating a radically new environment. We need to learn to function effectively in this environment because it's not going away. 
But at the moment, I'd say we, we demonstrably don't seem to have all the capabilities that you would need in order to, to do that well. All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. This week, Walter, we're going to survey the post-Dobbs, or I guess you'd call it post-Roe, uh, landscape in America and try to figure out where the issue of abortion currently stands in American politics and society. Um, I think the issue itself has been so central in the lives of and kind of wider political awareness of our listeners, at least our American listeners, for so long, and, and the contours of the debate itself are so familiar by now that I think a lot of knowledge on, on that front can be assumed, but, and we can just survey some of the recent headlines. So in August, uh, voters in Ohio rejected a ballot measure that would have made it harder to add abortion rights to the state's constitution. That followed a similar surprise win for the pro-choice side in Deep Red, Kansas, and also in Michigan, which seemed to give Democrats some hope that at least abortion as an electoral issue would be quite potent uh, in, in 2024, even in red states. But in Florida now, the state Supreme Court, one of the most conservative in the country, is weighing whether a 15-week ban on abortion would violate the state's constitution. People seem to think they'll likely uphold that law and pave the way maybe for a separate six-week ban. In Alabama, which prohibits almost all abortion, the attorney general there says he intends to prosecute women in Alabama who travel to other states to obtain abortions under the state's criminal conspiracy law. And then finally, recently on September 8th, the manufacturer of a widely used abortion pill asked the U.S. Supreme Court to toss out a lower court ruling that would restrict access to the pill to the first seven weeks of pregnancy as opposed to the first 10 and block it from being distributed by mail. So a lot going on here, but Walter, as, as someone who was sentient for some number of years in pre-Roe America and who lived through the 50 years of Roe and is now living through post-Roe America. What do you think? Is this, uh, is this a kind of laboratory of dem democracy, state-based approach? Is this a, a healthier equilibrium than the status quo ante? Or is this potentially an even more explosive fault line in American politics than it, than it used to be? Well, I don't think there's any way to make abortion a, an issue that isn't emotional and isn't political uh, because you have so many people who are so deeply committed to diff very different points of view and because it is such a fundamental element um, in people's lives. And you have, um, uh, I think there's, there's a bit of a background here, which is that that one of the things that's happened in our society as we, in a sense, we are, the state has become better developed media record keeping, all of this. There are a lot of things that go back a couple of hundred years ago and people just decided them for themselves in, you know, very, in, in very quiet ways. So you have an elderly relative and, you know, do you, you know, do you do something that we would now call euthanasia? You know, how do you handle that? And what would happen would be, you know, maybe uh, the the fam the family, the doctor, maybe a clergyman, somebody like that, um, you know, would would do things, and it was private. Same thing when when uh, a girl became pregnant. 
We used to use the phrase shotgun wedding was one response to pregnancy. Um, uh, there were, you know, we're talking about before modern medical treatment, there were various herbs and other things that people knew about. And, and but in general, you know, sort of, it wasn't very public what people did about these very important personal life things. Um, and as a result, it wasn't political. Uh, preachers might say from the pulpit, abortion is bad, um, uh, but fine, that's what they said. Uh, and then people went on and lived. And so as we've, you know, as we've developed as a, as a modern society, uh, more and more we see that our lives are enmeshed in sort of rules and regulations. Again, an Amazon driver today uh, is following rules their whole life long, you know, their procedures for everything. If you work in any kind of healthcare, you know, a nurse can't stick you with a needle without following the exact needle procedures often not even developed by doctors, but by insurance companies or what have you. Um, these elaborate rituals, long, complicated procedures. You know, we have public bodies that go through and, okay, this is how X is treated, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and so we're all at every moment of our lives sort of under the scrutiny of these rules. And at, so the, the abortion debate is, in a way, sort of conflates two things. One is how intrusive do, do, should, do we want the rules to be over one of the most personal decisions anyone will ever make? Uh, so whose business is it when a woman, say, does a self-pregnancy test and finds out seems to be pregnant. All right. Who needs to know and who needs to sign off on what she does? And that's one set and, and that's one set of issues. It's related to many other issues of per, you know, who do you know, is it the government's business whether you sleep with with someone of a certain gender or a certain age or whatever you may have it? You know, where is the line between keep your keep your big nose out of my life and legitimate state interest and necessity to to step in you know should you spank your kids and i'm not trying to say all these things are morally equivalent they're not but this but setting the morality of abortion aside it is one of a whole cluster of issues where the private space is being inexorably, and I think sometimes unwisely, squeezed out by, by law and by publicity. I think on the whole, we ought to be doing more to try to preserve spheres of private autonomy. On the other hand, there's the question of the morality of abortion, and I happen to be one of those people who does think that life begins at conception. 
I don't hate people who have a different view, or, you know, and, and I'm not sort of not ready to set up the Spanish or even the English Inquisition about any of this. But that's my view. And so when I, I look at this question, I can't help but think whatever the other circumstances might be, the loss of a human life is a, is a bad, sad, tragic thing. That doesn't make me the judge of everybody who who makes certain choices and who knows what I would what I would do if this if suddenly I were engaged in some very personal, you know, whatever. So for me, thinking about how do I come to this question of abortion, I've got three things to think about. One is what are my moral convictions? Two, um, where, how far should my moral convictions shape my attitude toward a particular law? Because to give you an example, adultery. I don't think adult. I think adultery is bad. I think when people cheat, people cheat on their spouses. That's bad. Do I want this to be a matter for criminal law? I don't think I do. Right. I don't think I want to have the adultery police knocking on people's doors. So call me a Soros prosecutor when it comes to adultery. I don't think we need laws for that. In fact, I think it'd be actively bad. Uh, so now abortion involves human life. So it's, it's more consequential even than adultery. But on the other hand, it's it's perhaps even more personal in some ways. So there's the question of like what's right and wrong, whether it makes sense to have this be a matter of law, and then ultimately, you know, where what are the boundaries of the sphere of privacy? All of which are incredibly complicated questions, all of which many people in America have quite different opinions about each of those things. And so, no, there is no way that abortion is, ever, is, is going to be a non-contentious issue any more than a number of others. Um, I guess the, the reason that I kind of like the, the fact that Roe v. Wade has been overturned um, is because I actually think that I would like to see if we can't if we can't take law out of everything, we can at least bring it closer to the people. Um, I, I think some of the law, abortion laws that we have in this country are far more liberal than I would like to see. There are some now that are more conservative than I really think are, are prudent and wise. But in general, the people in Alabama, I think, will be better off if they make their own choices and let the people in Vermont go their way, the people in Oregon go their way. And as a society, we can learn and see. And the final thing I, I think I would say to folks on, the, on this issue is that ultimately it all comes down to persuasion. That is... Uh, if you have strong views about this subject, pro, you know, abortion is, you know, to, to be against abortion is to, is to attack the fundamental equality and rights of women, or that to be for abortion is to be um, 
anti, uh, you know, is, is killing innocent children. Um, okay. Um, but you got to build a social, you got, you got to either persuade enough people. So there's a real social consensus for your point of view, or you have to accept the reality that there is no such consensus and that inevitably law will need to reflect a balance rather than going all to one side or all to the other. And I think that applies to both sides. And I, th there's the other thing that is worth saying here, I guess, is that law is a really blunt instrument. I mean, I know women who, I, I know people who are obstetricians and gynecologists and how, you know, a state legislature passes a law and then some doctor has to try to understand what that means to sometimes very complicated things, an ectopic pregnancy, who knows, you know, or, or there are a whole, there are other conditions present, you know, um, how, where does the law interfere with the doctor's ability to make a sound medical decision and in general, I think we can say that almost any time when the law is involved, the answers are crude, unsatisfactory, and you know, at best, at best, rough justice. And so, when you try to integrate this into your medical practice, that really makes for some agonizing and tough decisions. Also, leaves you to exposed to, in our very litigious society huge liabilities, no matter which sides you come down on in a particular case. So there is the problem that, that unless these laws are very, very carefully developed, um, you may have the impact of depriving women of good medical care in a given state um, simply because a lot of doctors just don't see how they can carry, they can safely practice. Not that they're abortionists wanting to do a zillion abortions. It's just you're putting me in a situation where every moment I could find myself, and plus their insurance companies may not be very happy to work with them. So uh, all of that said, it's a mess, probably letting each the voters in each state figure it out is about as good a way as we're going to get for this. Um, but I, you know, maybe if we have enough moral consensus, people try, you know, go back to pass a federal law. Anything I think would be better than the Roe v. Wade standard, where you basically had a judicial process um, setting a limit for everyone. That's the sort of most arbitrary possible way of doing it. But there are no good answers to this question. None. All right. That does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. Walter, on a much lighter note this year, it's the centennial of the publication, not only of Leave it to Smith, the last of the four Smith novels, Smith with a P, but also of The Inimitable Jeeves, the first in P.G. Woodhouse's legendary Bertie and Jeeves novels. I know we're both uh, great fans of Woodhouse, but I, I think prose in general is probably an 
underrated comic vehicle these days, film, TV, stand-up, YouTube, podcasts, memes especially maybe being the preferred mediums now. But there's still nothing better than prose that makes you laugh. So for this week, give us your favorite laugh out loud author, book, essay, whatever comes to mind. You know, I am going to say that that there is, you cannot beat the master. Uh, P.G. Woodhouse really is. Leave it to Smith, and we must always remember that the P is silent, as in pterodactyl. Uh, and uh, it's, and the reason why we should read this, and, and perhaps some of my listeners have never, you know, read funny prose. And, you know, I give light verse some credit too. Someone who you who just explores the sheer joy of language. Well, you you'll have fun with it. It's just watching, you know, the the puns, the the lovely, lovely use of words, the rhythms, the wit is 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 immensely enjoyable. But also what you're learning as you do this is how to use the English language. The English language is one of the finest creations of the human spirit. It has been, you know, million, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people have been working on this language, polishing it, developing it over generations. It has, it's complex, it's delicate, it's strong, it can do a million things. But if you're gonna if you're gonna be a writer, and I think even if you're gonna just be a thinker, you have to see what language can do. To study language is to study the mind. It is to study perception. One of the joys of of funny prose is that it alerts you to prose. It makes you realize that language is a thing. We, I find this with my students. They, they often don't really, I'll get a paper. Now, this is all before chat GPT, so I'm sure I'm going to get very different papers now. But there'll be a paper that makes sense to the students who hand it in, but as a, as a teacher, you read it, and it does not, uh, doesn't really cohere. The reason, I think, is because the student wasn't that aware of the difference between the ideas as they appeared in their mind and the ideas that as they appeared simply on paper. As a teacher, I can only read what I see. I can't infer your state, the state of mind of a student beyond this. We have to become aware of the language that we produce as a thing if we're going to learn to communicate effectively. So there is actually a serious case for reading funny prose. All right. There you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. <laughs>